Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Mold, a podcast from the National Precast Concrete Association. Tune in every month as we dig into a different aspect of the precast concrete industry. I'm your host, Joe Frollo, Director of Communications and Public Affairs at NPCA. Today, we're going to be talking about carbon capture and the role it is playing in both cement and concrete production. We'll start by talking with Sean Monkman of Carbon Cure. Later in the show, we'll hear from NPCA's Claude Gauguin and Jeff Bradfield of Anchor Concrete Products. These two engineers will take a deeper dive into the subject and explore more ways precast concrete facilities are working to lower their carbon footprints. Let's get started. Hey, Sean, how you doing today? Hi, Joe. It's a, it's a real pleasure to join you on this uh, podcast that you're launching. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about carbon capture and what you guys are doing over there at Carbon Cure. Um, can you give us a little bit of a history lesson and where this technology came from and how the idea developed and, and take the CO2 and reuse it in cement and eventually concrete? Well, uh, just as introduction, Carbon Cure is a company that has developed a suite of technologies to beneficially use carbon dioxide in concrete production, including precast concrete. And you can trace this idea back to McGill University. Um, myself, uh, studying a PhD and the company CEO and founder, Robert Niven, he was studying a master's degree, both looking at concrete, both looking at two aspects of how do you beneficially use CO2 to make concrete with the intention of lowering the carbon footprint of, of concrete. <clears throat> Uh, once he finished the, the, his studies at McGill, he didn't want this idea to just kind of die on a university workbench. So he he went out, he found some interested F, um, collaborators, uh, industrial gas company, a concrete company, architect, some government support, and through them uh, started to develop a technology. And I came on board as some of the technical expertise. And so we started actually, our first work was actually with um, concrete pipe in a precast plant, just understanding what a customer would need, how the CO2 strategy could benefit them. And it's, it's great with the mission too. It's it's nice when your work, um, you know, is fulfilling on many levels and, and, and just reducing the carbon footprint is just such an important part of how we have to move forward in this industry. And, and you guys obviously feel that at Carbon Cure, I'm sure. Yeah, for, for us, <clears throat> having looked at this CO2 problem, uh, going back to this work at McGill University, this would have been 15 years ago. And so the conversation at that time, carbon was uh, a part of the conversation, maybe in specialized circles, but now you can see the whole industry is conscious of the environmental impact of, of concrete. And now the question is, is coming about what do we do about the CO2 footprint? We know we can use SCMs, we can maybe use more <clears throat> lower carbon fuels when we're making the cement, but there's a lot of other things that we need in that mix in order to reach the overall goals for the industry to be a responsible partner in terms of the environment. Great. And where where are we today with uh, this application and uh, with what Carbon Cure? Who who are you working with? Uh, you know, maybe not specifics, but general across industries and 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 how many countries is this starting to spread to? We started in the um, masonry concrete space in about 2014, 
in about 20, early 2016, we then uh, uh, pivoted the technology towards uh, ready-mix concrete producers. And then in 2020, we started talking to precast producers. So amongst these various technology streams for our technology, which is using CO2 like an admixture to improve the compressive strength of the concrete, we are working with um, concrete producers in, in more than 20 countries. We have more than 500 units installed, and these are um, retrofit units of a CO2 injection system for concrete producers. Since the precast wasn't our, our focus out of the gate, there's a smaller penetration there, but uh, Carbon Care is working with precasters in Canada, the United States, Japan, and New Zealand. And we're helping bring that success we've had in the ready mix industry to the precast industry where they're, they're facing many of the same challenges. Change can be difficult for some people. How how's the reception been? Um, these are, you know, with the, some MPCA members, these have been companies doing their thing for 70, 80, 100 years, you know, in some cases with some of the, the products that they build. Um, how's it been? With any new technology, I, I would expect you'll kind of be able to reach those most innovative end users initially. And that that's who our initial response was from, people who wanted to be innovative, who wanted to try something new. Um, and if you could prove it with them, then your audience can shift to those people who don't want to be the first customer, they'll, they're happy being second or third, and then you can start working with them. Um, what we're seeing now as the technology has matured is that the landscape is even changing because you're starting to see an emphasis on concrete sustainability coming from, say, the government. You're seeing procurement policies, whether they are on a city or state level, uh, possibly even on a, on a national level, saying that, yes, we are one of the largest purchasers of concrete, and if we want to make um, environmentally responsible decisions, that comes down to the concrete we're going to buy also. So they'll start setting targets for the, the CO2 impact of their concrete, and so that means you start to get interest from other parties who may be incentivized to respond, and maybe they're comfortable using SCMs, maybe they're comfortable in the, in the same way they've been making concrete for 70 years, as you say. But it's time for considering new ideas, taking new things that can drive value for the industry. And so this is where we're now talking to different types of customers and they, their motivations weren't necessarily to be the most innovative person on the, on their, in their market. But now they're seeing that coming up with these uh, additional strategies, they fit well within their uh, their aims, their goals to make more sustainable concrete. Yeah, we've been seeing some legislation. Um, I think it started in the the West Coast and here in the United States and and up where you are in Canada, and and that certainly can drive if you want to get the the, the government um, contracts if you want to do that work with departments of transportation. But like you said, as people get used to it, as it becomes part of their their norms, and as they see other producers having success with it. Uh, we're certainly seeing it spread throughout more mem more of our membership and and more of our producers do it, which is which is an encouraging sign, I'm sure. For us, I, I, when you when we developed this technology from the start, we knew that uh, while the aim was it aim for the technology was to help 
the concrete producer to be more sustainable, that was always going to be difficult if that's your only value proposition, particularly if the end user, whether it is the buyer of the concrete or the manufacturer of the concrete, um, is then their costs increase. And so what we had inspired, what that inspires us to do is to develop a retrofit technology, which means that the, the, the concrete producer doesn't have to really change their process that much. When you're using CO2 as an admixture, every concrete producer is already using chemical admixtures. This works exactly the same way. So we just have to install a CO2 tank and a control system and, and away you go. And so this made it very easy to get things up and running. It, it made no CapEx type of arrangement. So you're not, you're not talking about long lead times preparing a, a major adjustment to your concrete plant. You, you can just install the, the CO2 tank and the delivery system and, and, and be operating. Um, from that standpoint, while the CO2 recycling is, is giving the concrete producer a chance to permanently bind that CO2 and make that CO2 removal part of their concrete production strategy, we know that in order for the concrete to be used, it, it can't be more expensive for the producer. So what is happening when you're injecting the CO2 is you're able to make the concrete stronger so that the CO2 itself forms nanoscale calcium carbonate. This can improve the compressive strength of the concrete and a, and a seasoned concrete producer knows how strong their concrete must be to meet the, the end use. So if you give them extra strength to play with, they have the ability to start looking at their mix design and making a few adjustments. And for uh, users of our technology, that is to use their materials more efficiently, specifically the cement. So they say, if you're gonna give me an extra 500 or 1000 PSI to work with, I can go into my mix design and I can start taking out some, you know, 25 pounds of cement or something like that per yard. And so that what's happening is the CO2 is meaning you can make that adjustment and you're not losing any of the performance of the concrete. And that means every unit of concrete that goes out is saving money for the concrete producer because that cement comes with a, a cost, but it's also saving CO2 emissions because we know in the cement and concrete value chain, the, the CO2 is really associated with the Portland cement production. So the rough idea is every unit of cement that you're able to save is a unit of CO2 that you're saving. So if you're going to save around 25 pounds of cement in a yard of concrete, you're going to save around 25 pounds of CO2. And so you can take that, not only is your environmental bottom line improved, but now the end users, the people who are buying the concrete, the people who are designing the buildings and making those decisions on do I want concrete or wood, they can see the effort being made to reduce the environmental impacts of concrete. And it kind of changes the narrative a little bit. You don't want to be caught doing something, you know, I'm just using SCMs and I'm making sustainable concrete. That's how it was done in like 1976. So we have to look at these new ideas uh, and how they can complement those existing strategies to help drive down the CO2 footprints. That's good. That was one of my questions coming in is uh, how much of a changeover it is for producer members. And it doesn't sound like it, it's something that's going to shut down their facility for days or weeks at a time as you have to change over all your equipment. It sounds like a pretty simple switchover. Um, and that, that's encouraging. 
Another question I have is, where is that CO2 coming from that uh, is used in the product? And, and, and you know, just what's, what's some of the information on that? So the ReadyMix producer who has now installed our technology and has a, a cryogenic tank of CO2 will get this CO2 delivered from merchant industrial suppliers of CO2. So those suppliers have already developed a supply chain to serve largely the food industry. So you're putting it into your soft drinks. You're using CO2 to flash freeze certain foods. And so this CO2 is now being collected and delivered to the concrete plant. If we go upstream from the delivery, we can see where the CO2 comes from. And in that supply chain, that's actually a byproduct of another industrial process. Examples would be fertilizer or uh, ethylene production. And what is happening there is your primary product, whether it's the fertilizer or the ethylene, you're able to you know, manufacture that, there's a demand for that, but there's a high purity CO2 off gas that comes out and it, in the absence of an industrial gas supplier saying I can make an economic economic case to capture and sell this CO2, that CO2 would just be emitted to the atmosphere. So we do have this uh, existing supply chain that's well distributed. It Since we're, our customers are widely spread out, that's the best solution for us right now. In the future, our technology doesn't actually care where the CO2 came from. And if the uh, cement plant CO2 capture is going to mature, there's a lot of discussion about that now. The, the Global Cement and Concrete Association says that uh, CO2 removal and capture from cement plants is a big part of the carbon reductions they have to make. And so if that CO2 is going to enter the, the marketplace for downstream uses, perfect. That would be a great story for us to, you know, take CO2 from the cement industry and use it in the in concrete production. But the CO2 can really come from anywhere that's able to purify and, and transport it to a customer. I'm already reading stories um, about projects about, you know, either carbon neutral or near carbon neutral structures that are going up, buildings. Uh, uh, there was one back in June, I think, uh, the first carbon neutral hotel went up in, I can't remember if it was California or, again, somewhere out on the, the left coast. What are, which projects are you hearing? What are, what are some things that people can look at? Because I know with, with our members and with our, our staff around town, we like to drive around and say, that's precast concrete. That's got precast concrete on it. What, what can we point to maybe that we see that's, hey, that's precast concrete and that's carbon neutral or that's going to be carbon neutral real soon? Like, like you say, I think the examples are pretty slim right now for, for things that have been successfully able to combine a number of strategies to reduce the carbon footprint that far. But if you want to talk about uses of our technology, I think the most high profile one right now, it's not precast, mind you, but it's a ready mix concrete being supplied to the um, headquarters being developed in Washington, D.C. area by Amazon. So they're they're breaking a, a, a brand new building and you know hundreds of thousands of yards of concrete and our technology has been part of that to help drive down the co2 impacts another one that you you might recognize and um, have a chance to see is there's an aquarium down in atlanta so we have a strong producer network in that marketplace and and when it was time to 
make the concrete for the aquarium. One of our producers was able to supply that job and they used the carbon cure technology on that. And so you've got this shark tank that has concrete that was produced with CO2 and that has allowed that concrete to have a lower carbon footprint through the re reduced cement. That, that's really encouraging to hear. A lot of our members do have uh, ready mix sections of their company, but uh, we'll start talking to specifiers and, and DOTs and and private projects as well about the benefits of precast concrete and how we can do it on that end as well. It's it's an important part of the concrete market, and we as a company are very excited to be joining the producers in, in the precast side. Well, hey, this has been uh, Joe Frollo from NPCA with Sean Monkman of Carbon Cure. And after we take a little break here, we'll come back with Engineer's Corner and talk with uh, talk about this subject a little bit more in depth. Sean, I want to thank you for your time and uh, good luck to everything you guys are doing out there. Thanks, Joe. Precast Days is an annual initiative of the National Precast Concrete Association designed to raise awareness of precast manufacturing across the United States. Through these events, facilities educate local communities about career opportunities, precast products, and modern manufacturing techniques. Learn more and register your facility today at precast.org slash precastdays. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold podcast. And today I am with Jeff Bradfield. Jeff is the CEO and owner of Anchor Concrete Products, Anchor Rebar Supply, and a new company, Lodestar Structures. He's a longtime member of NPCA, past member of the NPCA Executive Committee, he's past chairman of Water Wastewater Committee, and he and his company have served on many other committees, including the Sustainability Committee. He's the past president of Concrete Precasters Association of Ontario. And uh, he's also uh, won, a, won some awards. He won the 2015 Sustainability Award for a high-efficiency LED plant floor lighting project. And he's won the first place in the Cup Awards a couple of times for the uh, Kingston Monorail Test Track Project and uh, a culvert project on the 407 ETR Eastern Expansion Project. So welcome, Jeff. Oh, thank you, Claude. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, today we're going to talk about a little bit about you know this this new this this renewed I shouldn't say it's new but this renewed emphasis on low carbon or uh, low embodied carbon concrete and technologies that can help in terms of uh, of lowering that embodied carbon and um, and just enhancing the sustainability of your operation. So here in the United States, there's definitely been a renewed interest in sustainability, specifically focused on embodied carbon. And I know on your website, you talk about, first of all, your mission. When you go to your website, one of the first things on your mission is eliminate waste in infrastructure. And you can see throughout, there's a lot of mention of, of sustainability. So it's definitely a focus with you and your company. What brought that about? Um, certainly our customers have, they're having an increasing interest in sustainability. So a lot of larger government projects are, are leading the way in terms of you know, environmental product declarations, um, defining um, where your products come from, how, how locally they're manufactured, what all the transportation effects are. Um, but our, our focus really comes from some health issues that my wife had and overcoming those health issues and a, and a love of the environment. Um, and 
and through overcoming the health issues, uh, we studied a lot about uh, nutrition. We studied a lot about ecology and environment. And, uh, and that really has helped kind of change and, and refocus the company. Um, a lot of the information comes or started with a book made uh, by William McDonough and Michael Braungartner called Remaking the Way We Make Things in Cradle to Cradle. Um, that one is probably known to a lot of people, but it really had a, a large effect on, on myself and on the company and on the direction of the company. What kind, So once you decided, all right, this is definitely something I want to incorporate in our company in terms of manufacturing and our product, what sort of research and development did you do to, uh, to explore what you could do and what concepts came out of that? I, I guess I have a passion for learning, for lifelong learning, um, as does my wife. Uh, and we have, we spend our evenings and, and free time not really, you know, watching sports as a lot of people do. We're a lot more in, interested in the environment. Um, and we surf all over the world not just on the web, but also through travel, been to Europe, been to quite a number of places, Italy and, and other countries where they, where they look at the environment and, and human interaction with the environment differently than we do in North America. I imagine that those travels really opened your eyes in, in terms of uh, some, of the, some of the plant uh, technology or some of the, the equipment. It, it's... Uh, Definitely a little bit in terms of plant technology, but more in in community design. Um, so it, integrating in North America, we tend to disallow having um, residential areas near our our industrial areas. They mix a little bit with commercial areas, but they really don't mix much with industrial areas. Um, in Europe, it, it was quite common to visit a precast plant that was in the middle of a small town. Um, and, you know, where we have dust issues that would bother our, our neighbors and, and noise issues, they simply just decided to overcome those problems to become good neighbors. And that's what our company's focusing on now. We're overcoming, we're working diligently for years now to overcome some of our dust problems. Um, we're working diligently to overcome our drainage, um, stormwater runoff issues. We're integrating stormwater runoff into the design of our modular housing structures. Yeah, those, those are great. Those are great strategies. Really, when you think about it, you're hitting two of the three pillars of sustainability, not just environmental in terms of your runoff and dust control, but the social aspect of sustainability where you are being that good neighbor, you're enhancing the safety of not only your employees, but your neighbors. Um, we've talked about that in the past, suggesting to members that, you know, they use these large areas to uh, plant native uh, plants or, um, you know, invite people to come see the, the area, invite a Boy Scout troop or, you know, your community to learn, to become a better neighbor, to become more known about what you do because in, in a lot of cases people don't know what you do back there they just see the silo and they have a you know they know it's something concrete but 
um, I would say that enhancing that relationship with your community also opens up a lot of other opportunities, even maybe recruiting. Anchor is doing quite a number of things different in sustainability. Um, one being partnering with a group called Little Forest Kingston. Uh, we plan to plant about a two acre parcel along the main road in front of our plant. Um, that will do a number of things. That's It's going to introduce uh, about 50 different tree species. We're planting a food forest, something that our employees can harvest. And we're also planting trees that, that we hope that any dust that does come off of our site will help to be trapped by these trees and not make it into our neighbors. So there's, there's multiple benefits from planting uh, these forests. Down the road, we hope to link our forest with other forests and make community connected trails um, so that people can easily access nature. Wow, that's great. That's, that, that is really great. In terms of things you do in your plant, can you give us an example of a few things maybe you have done or you're currently doing, um, you know, like uh, for lighting or heating or things like that? What, what, what are you doing to help reduce that, that embodied carbon, embodied energy that goes out with your products? Sure. So um, one thing is we, we use a lot of supplementary cementing materials basically as meant as much as the codes will allow us uh, to put in there to reduce our footprint on uh, on Portland cement. Um, we have, as you noted earlier, we changed all our lighting in our plants some seven years ago. That had a, a fairly significant impact on the, on the electricity that we use. We're currently looking at a program to replace our natural gas uh, heating um, we have an electric chilling system that we use in the, in the summer to chill our concrete, make it um, at temperatures where it won't over, go over temperature when we pour, but in the winter that we also have to heat some of those concretes. So we're, uh, we're going to be putting in a, a very large, what I'm calling an energy battery. It's a water storage of something in the neighborhood of 200 cubic meters uh, of water will be stored. It'll be heated through um, solar and, and various other means. This experiment is going to help with our stormwater runoff. It's going to help um, with treated water on site. Um, we're going to be using this water for batching, for heating, for cooling. Um, and we're going to try and use as, as much natural processes as we can. Yeah, we. I was just at another plant in Massachusetts and uh, they've had solar panels there for a few years and uh, they power uh, one portion of the plant, they, they power 100% off their solar and uh, their larger manufacturing section, I think they power like 70 or 80% of it. Um, so, and they've already uh, paid off a, a quite uh, a substantial amount of that, that investment because they bought that system. I know you can lease them now. One of the other things we did, Claude, was we've had a water reduction program. So, Partly because we're, we used to be only on a well, we're now on a well and some truck water and some rainwater harvested water. We're, moved, we're, we're going to be moving over to fully rainwater harvested water for all our production needs. Um, we've identified that there's more than nine times as much water falls on our 40 acre site 
um, as there would be if we were manufacturing concrete at full production year round. So nature gives us, you know, pretty much everything we need. We just kind of got to open our eyes and, and figure out how to use it. In my experience, you know, some members are a little more reluctant to to implement some of these sustainability related um, processes in their plants. They will if if there's a mandate for it, but it's not something they're striving to do. You know, they're busy with a lot of other things. They're they're, they're just busy trying to get enough people in the door right now to to, to um, you know to to staff their operation and things like that, but. Something I mentioned, and I want to know your thoughts about it, is it's not always for just just environmental reasons. If you look at your processes within your plant and look at where there might be waste, getting back to your term of originally eliminating waste in infrastructure, looking at maybe adopting uh, a mission to eliminate or reduce waste as much as possible in my manufacturing. So where am I wasting? Where Where is there waste of energy? I mean, some... Some of these HVAC systems or any uh, heating systems, cooling systems, those can be those can have a, a higher level of inefficiencies uh, that can be looked at, I'm sure, and and um, and and made more efficient. Uh, things like air compressors, fork trucks. I don't know. There's all kinds of different uh, machinery and processes in the plant that, if made more efficient, can actually raise the efficiency of production and may actually have other benefits like enhanced safety, better, um, you know, quicker turnaround and lower cost. So it can actually end up saving money. Have you seen that, like some of these advances in, in efficiencies that you do that may also benefit sustainability, but has other benefits as well? Absolutely. Um, the, the push to, uh, to utilize all rainwater for our production doesn't just you know, it's not just because we love the environment and uh, we don't have city water here. It's it's also because we spend close to twenty thousand dollars a year trucking water, um, and there there are real benefits from making these changes. And the lighting, the lighting one was a really easy one because if you consider all of your production while working, if you didn't need lighting, you'd probably reduce your energy demand by 10%. Well, by going to a lower demand lighting, we re we reduced our peak energy demand by something like 15 to 20%. So it, it was saving money on the electricity of the lights, but it really knocked the top off of our peak demand when the mixer was running you know, and the cranes were running and the compressors were running. And then the lighting load was always on top of that. Um, it made a really significant difference. It's paid for itself times over. Uh, in your experience, where do you see the precast industry going in terms of sustainability, in terms of lowering impacts? Where should members maybe be focused on to be prepared for that, that evolution? Um, I think we're going to see some really substantial changes in the next 10 to 15 years. And one of the things that that I think NPCA precasters and precasters around the world should be looking at is, um, you know, what equipment have you got vested now? Um, what are you going to be using down the road? So one of the reasons that we got out of septic systems, and I, I've, I've chaired the septic tank committee, uh, you know, when it existed, the water and wastewater committee, there are a lot of people who are going to disagree with 
with my statements here. Um, but the impact, asking the five whys to get back to root cause analysis is really, really key here. So, you know, why does why does a septic system so wasteful? Well, um, one thing is, is that depending on how many people you have in your house and how much water you're putting through your system, um, it either performs very well or it doesn't perform very well. The lake that I live on has significant impacts from housing um, because we've had a lot of city people move into the to the communities. They run water as if they were in the city. Um, they overload the septic systems that were designed for less flows. Um, and all of those nutrients get into our lake and, and are, is affecting our lakes. Um, the more that I looked at septic systems, the more I said, it's not really the septic tank that's the problem because I've got two, two tanks at two of my houses. Uh, one is an anchor tank that's almost 50 years old. One's 40 years old, you know, and they're still in great shape when they get pumped. The concrete's still in great shape. The tile beds are probably getting a little bit tired. Um, the real problem is how much water we put down the system and, and we multiply our waste load. You know, the, the average person passes two liters, like two liters is just a little more than two quarts or right around two quarts. Um, that's how much waste the average person passes on a, in a day. Yet we use something like 50 times that much water to move that waste to a place where we want to treat it, either to the septic tank, you know, or to the municipal sewer system to flow it all down to the municipal treatment plants. Uh, the the amount the amount of water that how we're how we're moving our waste is the real issue, um, because if you take if you take that human waste just as its components of solids and liquid, they're actually nutrients. They're um, there are great things in there, phosphorus and, and nitrogen and um, all kinds of good stuff that can be easily harvested and affordably harvested. Um, but it's really hard to take those nutrients back out once you've added 50 times as much water just to move it to where you want it to. So we're, we're working on a system that's going to significantly reduce that added water and change the transportation of waste as well. That's uh, yeah. I, I know I, I know I participate on a on some committees uh, on, on, for NARA and other wastewater related um, in, uh, associations. And yeah, that's definitely something that that has been the focus of, of presentations and research is how do we make uh, wastewater treatment even more sustainable. Uh, uh, basically, recycling some of that some of that water uh, that's being lost in transporting waste and, and things like that. So that's uh, that's interesting that you bring that up. So it sounds like you're working on that. What about above ground products? Yeah, so, uh, housing is you know, and and st structures are definitely a big part of sustainability. Um, I sat through a seminar some 15 to 20 years ago. Uh, with our daughter Fawn, who's also very interested in sustainability. And an architect um, said to us, you know, the, the primary problem with the way that we build right now um, is that we build on a site 
but before the before it doesn't matter whether you build it and he said it doesn't matter whether you build out of stick frame or or steel or concrete um, before the end of the lifespan of that structure on that site typically the site comes to a higher end use and the structure is no longer appropriate for that site so what what's happening is that we've we've designed these systems houses structures um, we designed them to be the best that we knew back then, 5, 10, 20, 50 years ago. Um, but at the end of their life, they're nothing but garbage. There's very little that can be recycled out of it. Some of the wood can be recycled out of it, but there's there's steel that's stapled to the wood. There's you know wiring in there. It's very difficult to pull it all apart. A lot of it goes to the dump. Um, so we we designed a system. Our our structure system called Lodestar is actually designed to be fully bolted together on site um, and it will unbolt at the end of its life and you can literally load the structures back on trucks, you can load your wall panels back on trucks, you can load the structural frames back on trucks, you can move them to another site and repurpose them. We believe that these structures are going to last for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years um, and, and why shouldn't they? The other thing about these structures is they will not burn. They come with a two-hour fire rating, uh, minimum fire rating. Um, the insulation that we're using in the wall panels is a mineral wool as opposed to uh, an EPS foam or any other foams. There are, we're trying to remove all the toxins that we can remove. Um, and we're trying to make them removable, reusable, um, low impact at the beginning of their life um try and make them last as long as they can with the lowest impact possible in terms of getting back to carbon footprint for manufacturers who are looking to reduce the embodied carbon of their products they can do things inside their plant like we've talked about in implementing processes that enhance efficiency but also lower lower impacts but a lot of the a lot of the impacts come from the material, especially Portland cement. Uh, and I know there's some there's some old and, and true um, ways to reduce the impact associated with using Portland cement, which you mentioned using supplementary cementitious materials. But are there any other new technologies that you guys have used or are aware of uh, in your area that can help lower that initial embodied carbon? There, there certainly are some technologies. Um, the probably the greatest one is is where your materials come from, how they're how they're manufactured, how they're extracted, how they're crushed. Um, that's what we're finding as as we do our as we're creating our environmental product declarations and um, and uh, global the GWP global warming potential. Um, what we're finding is that there are there's actually as much opportunity in trying to look at the the entire system. So we could look at the the embodied carbon in a box culvert or in a manhole or a catch basin or a septic tank. Those are things that we can deal with for sure, and we and we have. Uh, but there's actually far more embodied carbon in the in the lifespan operating of those systems. And I think there's a, 
there's a massive opportunity for precasters and inventive people to, to look at the embodied carbon in the overall system. So if you, if you study the carbon of the pumping of municipal sewer systems, um, most of them are, you know, they're not fully gravity systems. They have pumps. And, and by the t- time you're pumping this waste over and over and over again to, until it gets to the treatment system, and then you operate that system for 20 to 50 years, there's far more embodied carbon in, in the handling, um, in the overall system than there is in the product. So if I was to ask you to make a pitch to all the manufacturers out there that find themselves in a situation where they definitely want to adopt or, um, increase their efforts in terms of just being more sustainable, reducing their impact, reducing their carbon footprint. How would you tell them to start? Like what advice would you give them? I would absolutely start with the book, Remaking the Way That We Make Things Cradle to Cradle. Um, Read that one, read it twice, read it three times. Watch some of the videos that they've got on there is so much loaded in that book um, and, and the subsequent books. Uh, when you really come to grips with everything that they're talking about, the whole picture becomes much, much clearer. It's not just about the product. It's about the systems. It's, it's easy to fall into a routine or a rut of just keeping doing the same things and not really and then not stopping and asking, why are we doing it this way? And also, I like what you mentioned about, you know, being positive about the impacts of our products, because our products are inherently, they're they're durable, they provide very, very important uh, resources for um, people to live in, to drive on, um, infrastructure, and if it, it depends on what you measure as part of sustainability. You know, if, you, if you're just measuring cradle to gate, in other words, from manufacturing to when it leaves your yard, and you're just measuring embodied carbon, well, there's things you can do to lower that. that that's true. But that's not the measure of the sustainability of your product. It's when it gets out in the field, it fulfills its function, and it protects an environment, it protects the people, it provides a service for a far longer time than a lot of other types of materials, then that you go from cradle to gate to cradle to grave or cradle to cradle if you can recycle the product like you mentioned. Now you're expanding on that what how truly sustainable it is. And then to your point, you know, if you're rendering um, a stormwater system unnecessary or things like that, that's even a more of an added benefit. So I, I, I like that. It's that holistic look at sustainability as a whole and how, how you can make something better that is, always, that is already great, not uh, making uh, changes to something that is negative. Yeah, tr- just, trying, just trying to reduce the overall cost. And that's a financial cost, but an, econo- uh, an environmental cost as well. Um, and while the environmental costs may not be able to be seen, some people may not see those at all. Um, they are there. They have long-term costs. They have substantial costs on our children and our grandchildren. 
that's another factor that drives me is um, trying to ensure that that our children, our grandchildren, and generations beyond can live as well as we have. And I, I, I think if we don't change, that's not going to be true. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree with you. Well, great, great advice, great thoughts, and and just great wisdom um, shared with us. I very much appreciate it. I know what I'm going to do tonight is uh, find that book and read it. <laughs> and um, so, thank you for that uh, for that reference. But um, yeah, but otherwise, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and sharing your. Um, sharing your experiences. My pleasure. I look forward to uh, continuing to be a member of NPCA and to you know work with NPCA members to, to make inroads. The, the precast product, in my mind, having evaluated many, many products, steel, wood, um, poured in place concrete, precast concrete, precast concrete has a major place in the market. It is one of the most sustainable products, especially when used in the right applications. When longevity matters, um, you know, lifespans of 100, 200, 300, 400 years, they matter. When you, when you look at housing systems around the world, you know, old housing systems, you'll see lots of stone walls standing, but you don't see too many stick frame houses of 100 years or 200 or 300 years old because they've all run into environmental problems. They've been blown down or burned down. Um, so precast has a place to play and I think it's a really bright future for all precasters. It sounds like it, definitely. Okay, all right. All right, thank you, Jeff. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Breaking the Mold. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast at Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. You also can help us extend our reach by sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. Until next time, this is Joe Frollo. Thanks for joining us.